This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Tegan Taylor, and a stranger. Yes. I think it's Norman Swan. Well, today your question's answered about the effectiveness of third and fourth doses of the COVID vaccine. And I'll be talking to a researcher about the balance between diet and exercise in living longer. And if you're feeling relaxed about catching COVID, Professor Chris Goodnow's story will make you sit up and put on that N95 mask. Because he, like many immunologists, have become perplexed that this virus is not behaving the way they expected. Unexpectedly, though, Chris has found himself with significant skin in the game. He's an internationally respected immunologist who, like Nobel laureate Peter Doherty, started life as a vet. Chris Goodnow has spent his career elucidating how white blood cells in the immune system operate to protect us. And he heads a lab at the Garvin Institute, of which he was executive director until quite recently. He's had four doses of COVID vaccines, but is now recovering from heart failure following a COVID infection. It's made him think even longer and harder about COVID-19. Thank you for having me, Norman. How did all this start? Well, I got COVID on uh, the 26th of May, like so many of us, a scratchy throat, went downhill, got my PCR straight away, came back positive. I thought, oh, this will be a couple of days. I'd had my second booster shot a month earlier, so I figured this would be just a cold and things would be fine. I'll be back on deck. Actually, it was a lot rougher than that. I was still positive by rat 12 days later. Then finally back to work and went downhill with what turned out to be congestive heart failure. So you were to have breathlessness on exertion, that sort of thing? Yeah, breathless. You know, felt like I was completely unplugged and coughing a different chest cough, then started to notice some of the more specific signs of heart failure, a bit of edema in the ankles and other stuff. And the great thing is Australia has great cardiologists and I was able to be looked after by the best at St Vincent's and so I was in good hands. And how are you now? Yeah, now I'm on the improve. You know, it was lucky, I think, that I didn't try to soldier through it. This is something that happens in about 2% of people that get COVID, regardless of whether you're immunised or not. Of course, uh, I've had plenty of time to read the literature on this. So uh, 2% of people get inflammation of the heart muscle, what's called acute myocarditis. If you're an athlete, it's enough to keep you off the field for three to six months because of the low but obviously serious risk of sudden cardiac death. And your prognosis? Prognosis is very good. I was very lucky. The uh, extent of heart inflammation is really at the mild end of the spectrum. You described fairly severe symptoms, but it was at the the mild end of the spectrum. Exactly. You know, your heart can be down to 10, 20% for some people. But there's a very interesting study that was done by 10 big universities in the US of athletes, any athlete that over the last year or so at the big 10 universities that had a positive swab for COVID went through a comprehensive test of their heart because of the risk that they might drop dead on the field, including spending 40 minutes in the big magnetic resonance imaging, which is the way to diagnose myocarditis. About 2.3% of them had myocarditis, enough to bench them because of the grave risk. Now, two-thirds of those athletes didn't really notice that there was anything wrong with their heart. It was subclinical. Now, you've used a bit of this time to, I mean, apart from the fact that you've been researching the possibility of a vaccine that might cover all versions of SARS, COVID-2, but 
you're also an immunologist with a long background in, in this area of how the immune system responds to infections. I have an international reputation for that. And what I keep on hearing from people such as yourself is this is a virus that's not behaving the way you expect it. Yeah, that is the thing that I think really stunned me and I, I'm sure has stunned most immunologists. As you say, I've from four decades of research really at the front end of T-cells and B-cells, I would have predicted that with all that immunisation and especially once you've had one infection, that the next infection would be pretty much asymptomatic. I had the thought in my head, well, look, I'm fully vaccinated. It's probably just a cold now. I might as well get it over with. And then if I get reinfected, it'll be nothing. And it turns out that is true for so many viruses, but there's now some pretty important data that's just come out, yet to be peer-reviewed from a group in St. Louis who have access to 5 million medical records for the US Veterans Affairs Health Network. And that says that actually for SARS-CoV-2, there's all sorts of health problems like the one I've got that are serious, but are just as likely to happen on your second and third infection. Just go through that data because they had people who'd been infected twice, people infected uh, three times. And the risks of getting problems such as yours, lung problems, brain problems. That's right, Norman. This is the first data that I think anyone's seen around the world. It's impressive data. It's real-world data. In the case of cardiovascular problems, which I obviously now have a very personal interest, if you've had one infection, there's a 1.5% increase in the number of people with a cardiovascular problem. If you've had two infections, it's now 5% of people. So it's not, not necessarily the risk goes up on the second infection. It's just each time you get an infection, you haven't got any immunity to these complications in the heart or in the lungs or the kidneys. And so the scenario that we're facing in the community and many people listening today will have been through it, you know, that people have had a second or third infection. So every time you dip your bucket in that COVID well, you've got the same chance of a whole lot of bad things happening. So do immunologists understand what's going on here? Because the important thing to differentiate here is that what we're talking about are complications of the virus, but not the acute severe disease. So the vaccines are still okay. They're not as good as they once were. But what we're talking about here is a relative ineffectiveness of both vaccine and previous infection about preventing these complications. That's right. And it is really important to separate those two because the vaccines, you know, I was thrilled to have my fourth shot. My partner is about to get theirs and they're doing a wonderful job of keeping people out of ICU. And that's job number one. These other things like mine are serious. They're much lower probability, you know, two, as we talked about, you know, one to two percent of people for mine. What's going on with these diseases is really, to be frank, anyone's guess. Other uh, viruses that we know do cause similar heart muscle inflammation. Uh, some of them, Coxsackie virus, quite famous for it. In those cases, sometimes the virus is actually replicating there. And so essentially the immune system's doing what it's supposed to do and the damage to the heart is collateral damage. It's not clear with COVID that there's any actual replication in, in the heart muscle. And the other possibility is that the immune system has done what it does in autoimmune disease and sort of got mixed up between what the virus looks like and what a normal heart muscle cell looks like. So that's another possibility. The third possibility is is more like what we think is going on with the very severe COVID, which is once you get an immune cell fired up 
into enough of a frenzy for long enough, they start to become a just general killer cell and they're no longer targeted in the magical way that they're supposed to be. So you've thrown a switch which you wish would not have been thrown. But I mean, if this is the case, it does increase the argument for masks because if the vaccine is not going to prevent even a rarer complication, you've got to prevent the infection in the first place, which vaccines aren't doing anymore. That's right. And especially if the second and third infections give you the same cumulative risk, it starts to add up. There's some nice graphs that if that's the case, and it certainly looks pretty compelling from this US Veterans Affairs data, then you're talking about you know, a scenario where until we've got a vaccine that actually stops the transmission, you know, a mounting cumulative series of problems like the one I've got, uh, which the only way to avoid them is masks and physical distancing and all the things which I can tell you I was sick to death of. I mean, the reason I got infected was hubris. I figured, look, I just had my last booster a month ago. I'm an immunologist. I know everything about the immune system and the virus. Uh, this is the one month or two in, in the year when I can just get rid of the mask and just enjoy life the way it used to be. And that lasted a week. <laughs> Have we ever seen a virus like this before? I mean, we're getting a variant every six months. I mean, BA4 and 5 are acting as if they're a new variant, even though they're a sub-variant. They're more immune evasive, not less. Sorry, they're, 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 as you say, we're not getting a cumulative benefit from previous infections and vaccination. Have we ever seen anything like this before? We have, actually, and that's the interesting thing, uh, although we may not have realised it, in two places. One is fairly recently, and it's been driven by the COVID thing, is, as you know, there are four different common cold viruses that are also in the same broad family as SARS-CoV-2, they're coronaviruses. And there's some very nice work that's recently been done in the last year or two from two groups in Seattle showing that actually two of those common cold viruses are doing exactly what we're now seeing with Omicron and BA4. But they've been doing it for the last 20 or 30 years in our population. Coming along every year or two, we get another case of one of each of them. And each time it's escaped the antibodies that we've made the first time before. There are two others where they don't even need to escape the antibodies because the antibodies that they induce are so low. The other place where we've seen this is in lots of other species. So this is where my veterinary training, as rusty as it is, helps a bit and why people talk about the need for one health and not arbitrarily separating out training in human health from training in all the other animals. And so in the chicken poultry industry, uh, the second biggest infectious problem after influenza is, is a coronavirus called infectious bronchitis. And there's been a lot of work going back many decades to try and come up with a vaccine to solve that problem. And the best they've been able to do is a, a live infection with an attenuated version of that bronchitis virus. And the antibodies come up and then within 16 weeks, they've dropped right off. Whereas other virus vaccines, given at the same time, the antibodies don't drop off. So this is a modus operandi that's unique to the coronavirus family. It's a trick that this class of virus has evolved a long, long time ago. And they've brought that trick with them in every species that they go to. They don't elicit very much 
antibody and it doesn't last for very long. It's such a contrast to the famous case of you know, viruses like measles where a new measles outbreak happened up in the remote islands in the Arctic Circle. The only people that didn't get infected were the ones that had been infected 60 years earlier and they still had antibodies 60 years later. So it's, it's very easy to listen to this and get a feeling of hopelessness or even terror that... that <laughs> We're just on this incredible journey of needing vaccinated every three, four, five, six months and still being vulnerable to complications. What are the chances that we'll, you know, given there's so much money involved in poultry, if they haven't come up with a vaccine for chickens, are they going to come up one, with one for humans? The frank answer is nobody knows. But the difference is we know so much more. We can see ways to do this that we couldn't have even imagined five years ago, let alone in other places. And the reason for doing it is, you know, I'm one one example of the reason why we absolutely have to do it. We can't just have this virus become something that we get two or three times a year. Just not acceptable. The social, personal and economic cost. So we have to crack it. And it will be cracked. It's just a question of uh, how many shots on goal before we get the one that wins. Well, you're involved in that too. So good luck and uh, I hope you get better incredibly soon. Well, thank you, Norman. And thank you for having me. And yes, you know, my message, if you ask me, well, what's my strategy? Well, a short term is, is get rid of the hubris and put on the mask. Thanks very much. Professor Chris Goodnow is head of the Immunogenomics Lab at the Garvin Institute in Sydney. As you heard, it's important to separate these complications of COVID from the severe acute disease that has the potential to kill us. And that's what vaccines are designed to protect against. Nonetheless, there seem to be many questions in the community about the worth of getting the fourth dose of the vaccine. And that's against a background of far too few people getting even their third dose. So what's the current evidence of vaccine effectiveness in an Omicron and BA4 and 5 world with third and fourth shots? To answer that, we have Professor Terry Nolan, who's working on vaccine development at the Doherty Institute in Melbourne. Welcome back to The Health Report, Terry. Thanks very much, Norman. Well, let's start at the beginning, because a year ago, it was about infection. Remarkably, the vaccines with Delta were protecting us against infection in the first place, much less, not, not to mention severe disease. They were, and um, around the world, um, vaccines in general, the different estimates recently, something in excess of 100 million deaths or more have been averted because vaccines have been used. So I think you were suggesting this yourself. You, Chris's story is, um, you know, uh, very salutary and, and, and something to keep in mind. But the other side of the coin, and, and I know Chris himself knows this very well, is the massive amount of benefit from uh, vaccines, albeit imperfect, has already accrued to us. What so, the variants are doing now to evade protection, full protection from the vaccine, uh, from, from the virus, especially from infection as opposed to severe disease, is really now the conundrum that we face. So infection a year or so ago, protection against infection at all was up at 70 or 80 percent with the mRNA vaccines. What is it now in BA4 and 5? Um, well, that protection was against symptomatic disease, so protection against infection, including those who were even asymptomatic, was actually lower than that. It was the same for the other mRNA vaccine. It was slightly less than that for the AstraZeneca vaccine. Protection against infection now, as we've seen these variants evolve, 
has progressively diminished and become more rapidly um, reducing in time um, as the different variants have evolved, which is what you'd expect. The viruses are doing their best to survive and the viruses that are fittest at hanging around and, and uh, more successfully transmitting themselves are the ones that are going to emerge as the dominant species. And that has happened with all of them. It's happened very, very quickly. We're having this conversation about Omicron. It only appeared in November last year in South Africa. And already the Omicron family or the sisters within the family themselves are evolving within that family now with BA4 and 5. So each of these generations has become more evasive in terms of protection against infection or mild disease. However, the protection against more severe disease has been holding up much better than that. So what is the what do we know about if you've had two doses and you have a third dose in the BA4 and 5 world? What, what does your yeah. severe disease protection go back to? Yeah, and well, we don't know yet because it hasn't been around long enough to, to see to see sufficient numbers yet. And certainly uh, in terms of um, duration or durability of protection because the viruses themselves haven't been around long enough to do the studies. So the best you can do is infer from, um, if in effect, test tube studies or antibody neutralisation antibody studies and so forth. And, and, and there is some variation between the different vaccines, but by and large, they all exhibit the same phenomenon in, in vitro in the test tube that um, BA4 and 5 has now uh, more effectively escaped protection from vaccine, still producing with the good vaccines that we have reasonably good levels of antibody. But until we actually see how that turns into protection in the population, you can't be too uh, rigid or mechanical about inferring that protection until we see the human data. And but there, if you go back to the earlier forms of Omicron, the data was the data were that you actually significantly abolished the waning effect. Um, well, n not not against not against just transmission. So that waning happens now very very quickly. Within literally you know four to six or eight weeks, you're starting to see substantial fall off in protection against transmission for the the earlier Omicron system. But severe disease. But severe disease is holding up and it is not falling off nearly as badly. Um, there is still benefit, having said that, there's still benefit in having further boosters and that, that is the justification for the fourth dose booster recommendation. And the data for that now are pretty solid in, um, in adding extra value to protection against severe disease, especially in those aged 60 and over. And there have been studies, two or three studies from Israel now, one from Sweden, one from Canada, and possibly some from the UK as, as, as yet, all of which are showing pretty substantial additional benefit by having that fourth dose against severe disease in those who are most susceptible to severe disease, which is in general those who are aged 60 and over. The studies have yet to show um, that benefit in individuals younger than that because they haven't had a fourth dose. Or and or because the the incidence of more severe side effects or more severe consequences of COVID is much less in younger individuals, um, in general. So, do you think it's unwise for a target to have gone down to thirty? No, I think they've been very they've been prudent. And if you look at the wording of the target recommendation, it it is careful in saying they're not really sure, but it's possible that there will be benefit. The wording is around if you wish to sort of at a personal level give you every possible um, bit of juice from the squeeze, then go but, ahead and get your booster. But this, but is, the not, this is the fourth dose. The third dose is incontrovertible. That's going to get you. Correct. 
benefit. Yeah. And yeah. which shot are you best getting? Uh, well, you can't have your fourth until you've had your third. But no, no, but what, what I mean is which brand? Safety. I mean, are you be, <laughs> okay, best no, going for Pfizer and Moderna? Yeah. yeah. Um, look, Pfizer was not just Pfizer and Moderna. There's a third vaccine, which is now licensed by TGA um, as a booster, which is the uh, Novavax, new vaccoid, which is a recombinant protein. Uh, and the data from that vaccine looked just as strong as they do from the two mRNA vaccines. So Atagi, I, I suspect, shortly will be making a refinement to their recommendation to emphasise that because when they made their earlier recommendation, the Novavax vaccine was not licensed as a booster, just as a primary course. That This is important because some individuals, obviously, who've had a vaccine-related rare adverse event such as myocarditis shouldn't be having additional mRNAs, and so having a high-quality vaccine as an alternative is really important. Secondly, the recombinant vaccine, the protein vaccine, is slightly less reactogenic, so it makes you feel a little less uncomfortable. But what really matters is that they all work equally well, and any one of those three vaccines is entirely suitable and people should get it if recommended. Terry, thank you yet again. Pleasure. Thanks very much, Norman. Professor Tony Nolan is head of the Vaccine and Immunisation Research Group at the Doherty Institute in Melbourne. Now, Norman, I know you're very into knowing about what helps you live longer. In fact, I think with all of your research, you might be the first person to just never die. So <laughs> my question to you is, which is more important, what you eat or how much you move? It's a bit of both, isn't it? Yeah, they're both important. It was a trick question. Uh, they both influence your risk of dying earlier than we might like, uh, which has been confirmed in more detail with a study involving Australian researchers, one of which is Melody Ding, who joins us now. Welcome, Melody. Thank you for having me. So people often hear diet and physical activity and their mind sort of fills in the blanks with a calories in, calories out equation. But what did you actually study in this in this paper? Um, we're exactly interested in that um perspective that you, you came from because people tend to have that uh, thought in their head about calorie in and out. So there has been some saying that perhaps if you're really active, you might um, outrun a bad diet. So we use the UK Biobank data. So more than 350,000 participants that we follow up for more than 11 years. At the baseline, we classify the participants based on their diet and physical activity levels. And we're interested in whether diet and physical activity in independently predict mortality. And we're also interested in different combinations of dietary qualities and physical activity levels to see what kind of combinations were the associated with the, the highest and lowest risk. And finding, surprise, surprise, both diet and physical activity were independently associated with mortality risk. That's when they were mutually adjusting for each other. And also we're finding that the lowest risk categories involve those who are physically active and have the, ha the highest quality of diet. Right. So, I mean, that doesn't really make a huge surprise, as you say, but it doesn't have a multiplying effect, which is what they th you thought might have been the case. No, we didn't find any multiplying effects. I was initially hoping that um, perhaps among those who are extremely active diets, the role of diet might be uh, less than the others, but we really didn't see that. It really seems like regardless of how active you are, a healthy diet will still protect you. So what can constituted a high quality or low quality diet for the purposes of your study? Because you're looking at, yeah, 300,000 people. You can't be asking them exactly what they're eating every day. 
That is exactly the challenge we experience because of the large ensemble. It's quite challenging to ask everyone to recall everything they eat in the last three days. So we use something called food frequency questionnaire, which is a commonly used in large、um, samples like this. So we selected、um, a couple of indicator、um, dietary items, such as、um, fruits and vegetables, fish intake, processed meat, and red meat, and we use these as indicators of how high or low their quality of diet is. And that's a huge、um, limitation because we didn't have information about. Um, for example, processed foods, fast food, or discretionary—you know—sweets and cakes. So we didn't have information about that. But what you're seeing is pattern, big, big patterns over a long time as being the cumulative、um, protective factor, rather than sort of homing in on individual meals day to day. Yes, exactly.、Um, there were some laboratory-based studies.、Um, Early on, on、um, small numbers that were looking at basically trying to ask the same questions, but using laboratory-based setting, and they overfed participants with, you know, junk food or fast food diet, and had them run on the treadmill to see how the the、um, the exercise counteract the overfeeding. And there were some promising evidence for like a short term, possibly on、um, uh, countering the effects of. Bad diet, so that's why I was interested in the longer term because、um, I think that these kind of short-term studies could be misleading. What about with physical activity? Is there a sweet spot in how much people were doing and, and the sort of payoff that they got? Yeah, so with our study, we basically confirmed what、um, has been observed over and over again with large epidemiological studies of physical activity. You don't really have to be the Extremely active person. So what it works is that it's not like the more you exercise, you just never die. <laughs>、um, using your words, <laughs> yes, right. So what we often see is that when we move people from doing something to doing, sorry, moving people from doing nothing to doing something, that's when we usually observe the largest risk reduction. So it's the same with our study. So compare with the least active quartiles, we really see. The largest increase of protection、um, and the largest、um, risk reduction compared the quartile two with the quartile one, and then we start to see incremental improvement the more active people are. But it's not like you know you're 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 constantly increasing at the same level. So I guess the message for the listeners will be you know if you're currently not being active, just start to do something will protect you against、um, chronic disease and premature mortality. If you could,、um, you know, start to build up a little bit more, and then the aiming for the WHO guidelines of 150 to 300 minutes per week, that would be a sweet spot. What about? So this is looking at patterns over time, over basically over a lifetime, and how those small things accumulate. As we said before, what if you're going from being a couch potato to doing something? When do you start to get a payoff from that? So this is something, unfortunately, with our data we could not answer because、um, we only have diet and physical activity at one point in time, so we couldn't observe long-term patterns. But there's sufficient evidence from the literature that with lifestyle changes, whether it's diet or physical activity, or even with、um, smoking and other risk behaviors, it's、um, never too late to start to make changes. So even in midlife or in older. Um, at an older age, if we start to make these changes 
there will be benefits down the road. Melody, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Associate Professor Melody Ding studies physical activity, epidemiology and chronic disease prevention at the Charles Perkins Centre and the Faculty of Medicine and Health at the University of Sydney. And now, Norman, you know how to live forever. I do. There's interesting data from uh, Melody's colleague, Luigi Fontana, that suggests that also it's the calorie gap that the, um, the benefit of exercise is that it creates a calorie gap. That all, If all you do is fast, um, say, two days out of five, then your basal metabolic rate goes down and you don't get the calorie gap. And it's the calorie gap that really makes a difference. So it's, it's, there's a complex effects of exercise on living uh, longer here. And if you want to listen to Norman's full conversation with Luigi Fontana, you can check out the Monday, the 25th of April, 2022 episode of The Health Report. It's a good listen. Good memory. <laughs> I definitely didn't use Google to help me. Well, that's it from The Health Report today with me, Tegan Taylor. I'm Norman Swan. See you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.